morning. I'm going to title it like this, Revival for Survival. Amen? I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet this morning. We read the Word of God together. Did I tell you where to turn yet? Okay, I didn't think so. Acts chapter 3, verse number 19. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. I'll give you a second to find it there. Let me switch mics while you're finding it. Get behind me, Satan. How about that? Do you know you have the authority in God's word and by the blood of the Lamb to say that to him? Amen. Those words, quite frankly, should be uh, frequent on our lips as God's people. Hallelujah. If we admit that he comes against us every day, then we just have to know that we can come against him in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I trust you found it. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 says this. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Where did the refreshing come from? From the presence of the Lord. And that He may send the, uh, the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Let's pray. Father, we love You today. And again, as we've felt Your presence already in our time of worship, God, our hearts are lifted up and we recognize again, Lord, that you have given us great and precious promises, that you have not left us to feel our way through life all alone and to be defeated and pounded by the enemy, but you have given us, God, that hedge. You've given us, Lord, um, a, a power that only comes through your Holy Spirit, and we just pray that we might know how to tap into that power. God, that you might take us that are dead, that are dry, and, and breathe new life into us as your people, as your church. And we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Everybody shout, Amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you. Be seated. Um, this scripture here, uh, this is Peter talking to a, a group of people who have just witnessed one of the greatest miracles, well, probably the greatest miracle they had ever seen. Uh, when Peter and, and John were going into the temple to pray, uh, there was a lame man, a crippled man, that was le- sitting next to the, uh, the gates of the temple begging for money. He figured, well, I'll get people going in and out of church, and they'll, uh, he didn't have a means of making his own living because he had never walked a day in his life. He had been crippled since the day of his birth. Uh, and Peter, going into the temple to pray, recognizes this guy. The Holy Spirit uh, uh, made him uh, aware that this guy was in need. And so Peter looks at the guy, and the guy looks at Peter, and he lifts out his hand, thinking that he's going to get money from Peter. And Peter said, uh, you know, I don't have any money to give you, but what I do have I'm going to give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And in that moment, we read that his ankle bones received strength, and those legs that had never been able to walk, those legs that uh, were dead and useless, all of a sudden come to life and got strength, And the man stood on his feet for the first time in his entire life, around 40 years old, if I remember correctly. And so, obviously, as people, passerbys and people going around, see this happen in this. Now, you got to understand, you imagine what you would do if you'd never been able to walk and suddenly you can. That guy gave them a good test drive. I mean, he jumped. He ran, he leaped all over the place. There's no doubt the guy was crying and he was shouting, he was excited, and he didn't care what anybody thought about him. He knew something had taken place. God had done something for him, and he wanted the entire world to know about it. So as he's cutting a shine and causing all a bunch of commotion, of course, everybody's looking over and saying, 
Man, that, that's that lame guy. I mean, his, now you got to understand, his legs, when you don't use your legs your entire life, they shrink up and they, they shrivel. So it was, it, people could visibly see that this guy was crippled, and now they could visibly see that he wasn't. So they come around to find out what the, what the to-do was. How did this happen? And they're looking at Peter like, man, this guy's a stud. This guy must be a god or something. And Peter says, you know, don't look at me as though I did this. I'm nothing. I'm just an old fisherman. But it was faith in the name of Jesus that healed this guy. And so then while he had their attention, he begins to describe to them that the very Jesus who healed this guy is the Jesus that they just crucified not too long ago. And that they needed to repent and turn and believe in Jesus. And that's when he said that in that time, let me go back and read it again. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. How many of you are glad your sins are blotted out this morning? Hallelujah. Uh, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, who heaven must receive on the, until the time for restoring all things. So, you know, the last few weeks, uh, I preached about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and, and Peter is referring to that here in the sense that uh, when we, re- we repent, we turn back to God and we live for Him. Well, Jesus, we know, has ascended and He's in, in heaven until the day that God sends Him back. And uh, as we talked about, the, the you talk about revival, there's going to be revival then, right? All the dead in Christ are going to rise again and be alive and they which are alive and remain. All of that is going to take place that we've been talking about. So we know that the refreshing, when God comes when Jesus comes and we are literally standing in his presence we will experience a refreshing like you and I have never known before because we will be in his presence and the Bible says that in the presence of God is the fullness of joy so we look forward to that refreshing where our body is restored everything restored back to the way it was when God first created us and we look forward to that but I don't know about you but I don't want to wait that long for revival amen I know that the times of refreshing will come when Jesus returns, but I need refreshing now. I need revival now. You know, I've heard, you, you, we've heard talk, you know, people in the church for years have talked about this great revival that's going to take place in the last days. And that's fine. That, that, that's fine and dandy. I hope that it does. But I need revival now, today. I don't want to wait till someday. The church has kind of lived... In the, in the past, waiting for the future, we're just kind of, it's like we're waiting for one day our revival ship to come in. One of these days, God's going to send revival. I think God's got revival cocked and loaded. He's just, he's just waiting for people who want it. Amen? So, because here's, here's the thing is that the refreshing comes in the presence of the Lord, and we know when Jesus comes, we'll be in his presence. But the thing about it is, when Jesus went back to heaven, he sent his spirit. The Holy Spirit that is here with us today, literally we are today in the presence of God. That tells me that I can have refreshing and renewal and revival right here today. I don't have to wait for Jesus to come. Hallelujah. Revival gives us a little taste of what things are going to be like. Amen. On that day. Just a little taste of refreshing that one day is going to come. I I titled it Revival for Survival. And I believe that from the moment we're born to the moment we're di- we die, it's a survival thing. Isn't that true? Every day, do you know why you eat? It's not just because the food tastes good. You eat so that you can survive. You breathe so that you can survive. It's about survival. And the thing about life is none of us are going to survive it, right? 
Nobody gets out of life alive, right? It, it eventually gets to all of us. But we need revival in our soul. We need revival for the survival of our nation. No, no doubt our, our nation as a whole is backslidden. Is that true? Uh, we need revival for the survival of our communities. Revival for the survival of our church. You know that our, you know that our and I'm not just, not just our church, the church of Jesus Christ, but our church specifically as well, our, our congregation. Do you know that we're under attack? We're under a spiritual attack like we really haven't seen since we started this church. You know why that is? Because there's a few people in here, a lot of people I believe in here, that are wanting some revival. That's what the new church, that's what the building is about. It's about revival. It's not about having a bigger building. But here's the thing, if we go into a new building and just with kind of a status quo type of sliding through, we really won't accomplish much and the devil will continue to fight us and he'll win. But if, if, if some people, if, if, if a group of people, God's people, just start getting a little antsy, right? We just, we just get a little antsy and we think, I don't want to be comfortable. I don't want to be flowing. I, God, I need you to pour in something. Lord, I'm about, I'm about half full and I'm not content with that. I want you to pour in of your spirit until it overflows. I need a, a revival in my spirit. Amen? So the church needs revival in order to survive all the attacks of the enemy. And not just, I mean, we can look, we know that there's bad things coming on the world around us. I'm not even talking about that. I mean, if we're going to survive that, yes, we definitely need revival. But I need revival in my soul just to, just to sustain me through the attacks of Satan personally against me in a day. Amen? Revival isn't something, you know, we could turn on, we think about a, a faucet with water and we turn it on when we need it. When you need water, you turn the faucet on and then you turn it off when you're done with it. But I think when it comes to this fountain of God's Spirit in which God pours out His Spirit to revive us, I think we need to turn it on and then break the handle off. Amen? Amen. So that it just continues to pour. And what would happen if God's people lived in a state of revival? And you hear me say this before, we, we, in, in the church world, we think of revival, we think about, well, that's a, you know, a week of services. We come together and we, we have you know, church service a, a week in a row. And that's not the kind of revival I'm talking about. Those kind of revivals can be good, and those kind of revivals can be pretty much a waste of time. Can be. For the most part, they're good. I'm not talking about that kind of revival. I'm talking about a personal revival in which we live in the presence of God, amen, in which the refreshing comes we talked about that as we were singing a minute ago we get defeated but God said I want you to understand that you're not a defeated people you're a victorious people all we need is a a little revival in our soul amen our church needs it our families need survive need revival for survival there is an attack on the Christian homes like we have never ever seen before we need revival. We talk a lot about the presence of God. Oh, church was so good today. The presence of God was there, and that's good. We want the presence of God to be in the church house when we come together and pray, but we need the presence of God in our house. Not just in God's house. We need it in our, our house. Amen? Because in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. In the presence of God is a refreshing and a reviving. What if God's people really opened up the doors of their house and welcomed God in? Fully and completely. Do what you want, God. Clean house. Change things out. What would happen? But before any of that can happen, there has to be revival that takes place. We, our personal, individual Christian faith, needs revival for survival. 
Yes, he's attacking the families. Yes, he's attacking the church. Yes, he's attacking the, the, uh, the communities. <coughs> but he's attacking the faith of Christian people. If he can destroy our faith, he can thwart revival forever. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm gonna, we don't need to look for revival in the world around us until we look for revival in us. Amen? Oh, great revival. We want a great revival. It all starts right here. Because Satan is attacking our faith, and if he can destroy our faith, he can destroy the work of God. We need to guard our faith, folks. And that's what revival does. It guards our faith, and it strengthens our faith. See, when God's people start wanting revival, and we really look for the presence of God, God shows up, and you know what he does when he shows up? He starts doing some pretty amazing things. He starts healing things, healing bodies. He can heal uh, you know, homes. and I mean, he just, God starts doing great and mighty things among his people when they ask him to, when they want revival. And so then what happens is as you begin to see God work and do great things, it increases your faith. And you look for him and you trust him for the next thing in your life. Amen? Amen. I had a dream last night, and uh, I'm not saying this is some big prophetic dream, but I did think it was kind of interesting that I had this dream last night before I preached this message. But... Um, uh, in my dream, for whatever reason, uh, our nation was under attack, and, and it was kind of like a, it was like an all-out jihad that was coming against the the nation. And uh, I remember thinking in my dream, it's like this is this is Armageddon. This is what the Bible talked about. This is where it's all you know. I mean, this is a great attack of faith, and this is it's coming to the moment now where we as Christians may lose our life for that. We have to know that we believe. So I just remember thinking, this is it. This is what we've always you know, trained for or prayed about and thought about. I mean, this is, this is it. It's coming. And in my dream, knowing this is all about to happen, I started cleaning my house. I was like cleaning. I thought, well, I need to get this all clean and organized, you know. So I'm going across my desk and I'm organizing my desk and I'm thinking, well, we need to do this in the house. And, we, we get, and all of this stuff. And this morning as I was, of course, I didn't think nothing about it really until this morning I got up early and was, you know, uh, kind of studying for this message and praying. And that dream come back to my mind and, and I thought the thing, the thing that spoke to me about that is that we, uh, we know that we're under attack uh, of the enemy every day. It's not, we don't have to wait for Armageddon to know that we're under attack by enemy forces. And in order to prepare for that attack, God was just showing me that I needed to clean house. House, this house. That, that there needed to be some organization and some decluttering in my life to prepare for the type of attacks that was coming, you know, upon me. I faced a lot of attacks as a, as a pastor. You do. If you're a leader of any kind in the kingdom of God, you're going to face some major attacks. But if you're a Christian, period, you're going to face them. And, and in order for us to be prepared for that, we need, uh, there just needs a good old house cleaning. See, because here's the deal. Even good people need revival. Amen? Good is the, I heard this here a back, and I've, I've, it's never left me. I'm still, good is the enemy of great. If we're content with good, we'll never get great because we're just fine with good. But if there's something about us that says, no, I want, I want great. See, good people need revival. You're, this room is filled with good people, good people that are going to go to heaven. But good people need revival in their souls. And revival produces great Christians. And, what, and now I'm not trying to totem pole this, oh, we're better Christians than others. I, I mean effective Christians, let's put it that way. Revival produces Christians that literally are effective for the kingdom of God. Christians that don't live in defeat all the time. Christians that can take a licking and keep on ticking, so to speak. The enemy comes against us, but we just we put one foot in front of the other and we keep marching forward, even when it doesn't feel like we can. 
That's what revival does for us. And so we, um, we got to choose. It's a decision. I mean, God doesn't pour into us unless we ask for it, unless we desire it. And so we have to come to, to a conclusion as a church and as individuals, we have to choose between revival or rigor mortis. Amen? Think about that. What is rigor mortis? Have you ever come across a, a dead animal and picked it up and it's, it's stiff? Right? Its legs are sticking straight out. Its tail's sticking straight out. There's something that takes place when, when, when that body, that, that carcass dies, a chemical change that hardens the muscles. I looked this up. I thought this was interesting. Um, you say, why were you thinking of rigor mortis? I have no idea. These things just come to me while I'm, while I'm studying. I don't know. Um, but I looked it up. And rigor mortis, uh, rigor it, uh, comes from a Latin word that means stiff. And mortis comes from a Latin word that means death. So when we talk about rigor mortis and, and that deer, the Saturday, and its stiffness, it's a stiffness that comes from death. A stiffness. When something's stiff, it's not pliable. It's not, it's not movable. It's in its position, and that's the way it's going to be. And in order for God to really bring revival, he's got to get the rigor mortis out of the church. As a church, you know a church can be completely dead? I mean, dead. We read about one in Revelation chapter 3. It was a church in Sardis. And Jesus wrote a letter to them and he said, you guys have a name that you're alive? You have a, reputa- a reputation of being a, you know, a church that's alive and flourishing, but you're dead. They're stiff. What does that mean? It means that in the church, people can get so comfortable with the way they are that you can't move them. They're not pliable anymore. They're just stiff. And even to the point of being spiritually dead, you couldn't move them if you tried. Jesus said, you guys need to really wake up. That's what he says in there. Wake up and repent. He was trying to get this church into a state of revival and out of a state of rigor mortis. I don't want rigor mortis to set into this this soul where where I become stiff-necked. Remember, God told his people, Israel, all the time, you guys are so stiff-necked. He wanted to do something in them. He wanted to do great things in them and through them, things that the, the nations of the world would marvel at, but they were just always stiff. And they wouldn't allow God to just move them. They were always fighting against God. And it just it worked against themselves. What would have happened to that nation if they had just literally just let go and let God take over? We can ruin, we can, we can rob ourselves of a, a lot of blessings in our life just by bucking against God. Being stiff. No, God, I won't do that. No, God, I'm not going to do that. We get stiff-necked and we get hard-hearted. But the good news is, that revival reverses rigor mortis. Amen? Revival reverses that stiffness, that hard-heartedness, that bitterness sometimes that, that has a tendency to set in. That the revival comes and it begins to tenderize that. Because see, here's, here's the deal. We're serving, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Amen? Look at Lazarus for just one moment. The guy had been dead for four days. Rigor mortis had already set in. Four days he'd been dead. But Jesus comes along, the resurrection and the life, and he brings revival to a man that's been dead for four days. And literally, as Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, life came back to him, and rigor mortis was literally reversed, and the guy stood up and began to walk. 
Hallelujah. All we need, folks, in our soul and in our church is for Jesus to speak into us, for, for Jesus, the resurrection and the life, to breathe His Spirit in us. And then that rigor mortis that we just get caught up in begins to reverse and we stand up and we're able as a church to move and to, to operate and flow flexibly by the Spirit of God and we do some great things. Hallelujah. Resurrection and the life. Can I let you in on a little secret if you don't know this already? As to uh, one of Satan's greatest tactics to battle against God's church and to battle against revival. The last thing the devil wants is for God's people to start getting spunky. Amen? It's the last thing he wants. Satan is not at all threatened by the fact that we go to church. Sure, he'd like to keep you out if he could, but really, as long as we stay here in our church and as long as we sing our little songs and... Stay nice and calm. He'll leave us alone. He ain't too worried about that. But you let, you let people start getting spunky and start thinking, you know what, There's, i got some loved ones that aren't saved. What's going to happen to them? And, man, you know, I'm just kind of dry. I don't feel the Lord like I did when I first got saved. I've heard a lot of people say, I've said that myself. I, just, it's just, I remember when I got saved, I, was, I just don't feel that anymore. And I'm not content where I'm at. Lord, I just want you to, to move in me. We begin to realize that life is short and we get to realize that in the presence of, we get, to, we, we get just a taste of it. Maybe you come to church like a service like this and the presence of God fills the place and you, you get to feeling that and the goosebumps come up and you think, yeah, I want some more of this. Then the devil starts getting a little worried. And so he ramps up his attacks, and one of, the, one of his greatest tactics in battling the church against revival is to literally give us whatever we want. That's his, that, was, that was his idea, I think. So, you know, I fight against these people, and I fight against them, and I fight against them, and they just they turn to God. Let's just give them whatever they want, and then their selfish hearts will turn themselves away from God. We all have selfish, prideful hearts, and when we get whatever we want and life is great, we just naturally have a tendency to drift away from God. Wow, what a plan. In the book of Numbers, you can turn there if you want to. You can turn to 25, but I'm going to start a little bit before that. Numbers chapter 25. It's fourth, fourth book in the Bible, if you're not sure where that's at. In uh, Numbers, you know, the 23rd through the 24th chapter, we read about, uh, this is during a time when the Israelites were uh, going through the desert, okay? They've just been delivered from Egyptian bondage, and now they're on their way to the promised land. And as they're going through there, here's this mighty nation going through the desert uh, with a God that just literally destroyed the Egyptians, and so all these other nations in Canaan, they, uh, they, they hear about this. They hear about uh, Egypt being destroyed and, God, and the God of Israel was a real and mighty God. And so all of these other nations were fearful of the nation of Israel. And so this one particular king, his name was Balak. And he was the king over the Moabites, who was one of these nations in Canaan. And he knows that Israel is coming his way. And he's, he's afraid. He's like, these people will eat us up. These people and their God are going to destroy the Moabites. So Balak went and he found a magician, a soothsayer, if you will. I'm going to get, and so he goes to Balaam and he said, look, these, these people are coming towards us. I want you to go up here. They could see them. They went up on a mountain and they could see Israel and coming this way. He said, I want you to curse them. 
So Balaam gets up there, he does his little sacrifice thing, and he gets ready to try to curse this people. And God, I'm paraphrasing this, but you read it in Numbers 23, 24, and on to 25. Uh, God literally speaks to this guy and says, don't you do it. Don't you curse my people. And so Balaam ends up blessing the nation of Israel. And Balak's like, what are you doing? I, I paid you, I hired you to curse them. He's like, I can't, God won't let me. So he said, well, let me take you to a different spot. Maybe you can curse them there. So he takes them to a different spot. He looks down and he tries to work up a curse and he can't do it. He ends up blessing them again. Balak is just, what are you doing? I can't curse them. God won't let me. Well, let me take you to a different place. Let's hide from God. Maybe I don't know what his tactic was. Maybe God's not over. Let's go to a different place. Third time, same thing. And Balak is just livid. He's beside himself. He said, I hired you to curse them. And Balaam said, I can't. God will not allow me to curse them. God had blessed and blessed and blessed bountifully. And when, when nations would come against Israel, they would run to God and God protected them. And so literally, Balak could not beat them that way. He couldn't beat them by afflicting them and causing curse and hardship uh, in their lives. So when Balaam couldn't curse them and turn them away from God and make their life miserable. He literally defeated them by befriending them. You know the old saying, can't beat them, join them. Instead of cursing them and getting them that way, I'm going to befriend them. And so he did. He made friends with Israel. And what happened was the Israelites got cozy. Right? Devil says, I know. Let's just give them whatever they want. Let's make life easy on them, easier. Then they'll just kind of forget about God. They walk into Moab, and they team up with the Moabites. And the bad thing about it was, which God had told them not to do for this one reason, they started looking at the gods of the Moabites and thinking, hey, they got some pretty cool gods. Balak, what a, it was Satan behind the whole thing. What a, what a sneaky maneuver i'm gonna beat them by befriending them hallelujah so it makes me stop and think i ask myself the question i'll ask you have you in some way befriended the devil i'm not talking about you know you're painting your eyes black and getting a ouija board and biting the heads off rats and you know making sacrifices with upside down burned crosses or anything like that i'm just talking about in your daily life is the enemy that's what he does in many cases to hinder revival in us is just to make us nice and cozy and befriend us to a, to a certain degree. Get us to a point where we'll accept certain things that, you know, it's really not right, but we'll kind of compromise a little bit. And every time we compromise, a little bit more rigor mortis sets in. The more we compromise, the more stiff we get. And so the devil likes to make things nice and easy. I want to turn your attention to Numbers chapter 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, meaning they joined not only the Moabites, but the Moabite God. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal Peor. And behold, I want you to see, I want you to see the bold-faced, arrogant 
rebellion in this next couple verses. Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family, into his house, in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. While they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Why were they weeping? Because, number one, God was angry with them and they were killing their leaders, right? Because God had told them uh, people are going to die because they have rejected me and joined to this God. So while the people are weeping in the temp, the temple, the, temp, the tent, this guy brings this Moabite, this Midianite woman in, in the middle of the whole congregation, unashamed, boldly sinning before God. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber, right into his house, into his tent, and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000 people. Now look. A couple more verses. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him, Phinehas, my covenant of what? Peace. It shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So let me just boil that all down. What did we just read? Just simply this. Baal invi- or, uh, uh, Balak invites them all in, give them what they want. They join with the Moabites. Uh, these Moabite women were beautiful to them. They say, okay, well, let's start the guys, the, the Israelite guys start... Uh, Dating, if you will, the the Midianite women, which is what God prohibited them to do. Don't mix with these other nations. Their gods will turn your heart away from me. But they did it anyway. And so God issues down judgment now upon the nation. And here comes this guy, has a Midianite woman, taking her right straight, I mean, complete disobedience and rebellion against God, takes her right into his house. I wonder how many things we bring into our house that we don't realize just what we're bringing into our house. How defiant we become against God at times. This guy was defiant. He didn't care. He was unashamed. Didn't care that Moses saw him. Didn't care that the congregation of Israel saw him take this Moabite woman. And we're living in a day now for sure that uh, there's no shame anymore for sin, right? It's open. It's blatant. But it's in the church even. There's a lot of things, sinful things that are masked in the church and people we just kind of are okay with it anymore and we blatantly many times bring the devil with us. We befriend the devil and bring him to church with us. We bring him home with us. We take him to work with us. This guy goes in and there was, there's this man named Phinehas. It just something went all over him. It wasn't that he was necessarily just pointing fingers or judging this man or mad at the man so much as it was that he just realized we are not where we need to be with God. There was this spirit of of revival that comes over Phinehas and he says, we just can't stay. God has already issued the decree that people who joined themselves to to this false God were to be killed. Okay, God said, we got to get rid of them. And so Phinehas takes a spear, runs into the man's house and literally shish kebabs those two. Runs a spear through the man and the woman, same time. Shish kebabbed them. And it was that zeal. 
It was that longing for revival, that longing for God's will to be restored the way that it's supposed to be, for God to get His way for a change, that God was so admirable of that zeal that He said, I'm going to turn back the plague. He literally healed the nation because of one man that wanted revival. Hallelujah. God is just looking for people to say, I just... I don't want to stand for it anymore. I mean, thank God we're in the New Testament. I'm not going to come running into your guys' house and shish kebab you because you, you know, you've got some sin in there or something. We're, we're living under grace, yes. But folks, sin, sin destroys. Sin destroys. We've had our way. We've had our way long enough. However old you are, you've had your way long enough. Isn't it time just to let God have His way now? I mean, He, he created all of this. I mean, it's kind of His world and... We're kind of His people, right? What if God just had His way? We would have great revival. And the best way, by the way, to find out if we have uh, befriended the devil is to ask the Holy Spirit to help you clean house. When you start getting desires for revival and you say, Holy Spirit, help me clean house, uh, you will find all kinds of compromised clutter. You'll find, I don't care who you are, how much you love Jesus, how long you've served Jesus, I promise you'll find some clutter. In my dream, all this clutter, I don't even know where it came from, and I have to get it cleaned up, I get it, get it organized, and just re- revival helps you turn loose of the clutter, right? Revival, it exposes the clutter. What does the clutter represent? I don't know, it's different. Well, maybe, maybe your clutter is, you're just more concerned about making money than you are serving God. Maybe your clutter is... Uh, you know, you'd, your hobbies are your God. You're more important. I mean, and hobbies are great, but, but they just, that's what you live for. Or maybe, I mean, anything can be clutter. Anything that just kind of, the Spirit of God can't move in your life because He's having to step over so much stuff, right? And so, revival comes to a person, and we have this clutter, we have these things in our life, and revival comes along and says, man, this is better, and it just helps us turn loose of the clutter. I'll tell you something, folks. When we really tap into the presence of God, there is nothing tangible in this world you can hold on to that will be any better than what you feel in the presence of Almighty God. Amen? You don't have to turn there, but in, in the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy, God, one of the warnings He gave His people, He said, as you come into the, the land of Canaan, and, and your life is going to be so great, you're going to have everything that you need, everything that you want. God said, I'm just going to bless you and bless you. But he gave them a specific warning. He was, he was letting them in on the secret of how the devil works. He said, be very careful, though, that those blessings, that stuff, the vineyards, the houses, the wells, all that stuff I'm going to give you, be careful that you don't look at all of this stuff and, and, and start patting yourself on the back and start saying, well, it was by my hard work that I got this. It's by my smart business decisions that I got in this place. He said, don't forget which hand it was that gave you all of this. And, they, and you read on down through the history of Israel, they did not heed that warning. They got very used to the stuff and the devil used that to rock them to sleep and they turned against God. Amen? If Satan inflicts pain on us and difficulties and problems on us then we run to God quickly but if he if he pampers us then we just kind of drift away from God real slowly you get it 
He inflicts us, boom, we run right to God because none of us like pain. None of us like problems. So as soon as it comes, I mean, if you, if you have a tragedy, something takes place in your life and it's the hardest thing you've ever gone to, you don't think to yourself, well, here in a few weeks, I think I'll get with God and see what he has to say about this. No, you instantly run to God when things are bad. But when things are good, it's, it's kind of a slow drifting. And that's the enemy's tactic. purpose of this message this morning, I believe, is the Lord wants us, number one, to um, recognize that Satan's been playing with us and we didn't even know it in many cases, to expose that. But to get people hungry for revival. Amen? Personal revival. To not be content with the status quo. You know what the status quo is? status quo is when you just kind of just keep doing what you're doing. I had this thought this morning. You'll think it's corny. I think it's funny. But it's true. Status quo is filled with woe. But revival is filled with woe. You got it? That's true. <laughs> Psalm 85, 6 says this. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? God, will you not revive us again? We were there once. It's what, first of all, you can't be revived until you've first been vived. Right? <laughs> revive, meaning I was there once, but for whatever reason... Maybe my own mistakes, maybe just life beyond my control. Maybe a little rigor mortis is setting in. Maybe I'm getting a little content where I'm at. Maybe I'm, whatever the case. But God, will you not revive us again? Get us back to where we once were, that first love, that, that passion, that desire, that feeling, that contentment we got, Lord, when we first came into your presence. Hallelujah. Time of refreshing. How many of you need that? That your people may rejoice in you. How many of you just need a time of rejoicing and refreshing in the presence of God? I do. I need that every single day, not just on Sunday. The good thing about it is God's presence goes with us everywhere. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Would you stand to your feet this morning with me, please? And